Most of you have heard of Viktor Frankl. He endured unimaginable hardships during the Holocaust. He later wrote the influential book, Man's Search for Meaning. Frankl held on to something that allowed him to survive, that allowed him to maintain his humanity in severe and extreme suffering. Aaron Ralston's remarkable story of survival is told in the movie 127 Hours. When hiking alone in a remote canyon in Utah, his arm became trapped under a boulder. And after several days of attempting to free himself, he realized that his situation was dire. And after realizing the only thing that could free him was extricating his arm, and so with a pocket knife, he amputated his own arm. What kept him going to do such a thing? Tammy Ashcraft's survival story was depicted in the film Adrift. After a devastating hurricane during a sailing trip caused their boat uh, to be lost at sea, uh, she lost her fiancé from the wreckage, was stranded on this damaged boat for 41 days in the ocean. And despite the immense challenges and grief, she held on to something that kept her going until she was eventually rescued. Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped at the age of 14. She was held captive under horrific conditions. She didn't give up for some reason. The late Senator John McCain, a prisoner of war during the Vietnam era, for five years was held captive and tortured, brutal conditions. But something sustained him to keep him alive. What was it? What did Viktor Frankl, Ralston, Ashcraft, Elizabeth Smart, John McCain, what did they all have? Hope. Hope. A clear picture of what the future could be. That kept them alive and helped them endure. The power of hope. Peter writes a church in what is now the modern day Turkey. And he gives the greatest reason for hope. That Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth. And the earth and the heavens will be remade. Wow. Rather earth-shattering, literally. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. 
And drawing his book to a close, Peter is making life application from the promise that Christ will come again and build this new heaven and new earth. He does so in the context, remember, of false teachers who've influenced the church in their denial of the second coming and their advocacy of sexual immorality. It deserves mentioning that the theology of denying the promises of the Old Testament, denying the promises of Jesus, denying the promises of the apostles concerning the second coming had a direct link on the behavior of the false teachers. In other words, because of theology, therefore, there's a change of behavior. He's making a connection between theology and behavior. And so should we. You hear a lot of people who say, you know, theology just doesn't matter. I would suggest they really don't know what they're talking about. Now, I get that people get hung up on certain aspects of theology and lose their way. That is true. But theology itself is extremely important. What we believe about God, what we believe about the world, what we believe about Christ, our salvation. You know, you are probably like me, and you meet up with a lot of Christians who just kind of lose their gas when it comes to the Christian life. Right? They, just, they just flame out. They're not motivated anymore. I think one of the reasons that Christians lose motivation for living the Christian life is that they have reduced, and, and maybe accidentally, but they have reduced the Christian life to a list of moral imperatives instead of it being something that springs from a robust understanding and relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, their theology has not impacted their behavior. For instance, we understand God's work in salvation. That's theology. And appreciate the grace that we can experience and the grace that we can give. That's an amazing thing. We understand the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and how Christ puts an end to animal sacrifices because he is the spotless, perfect Lamb of God. He died for sin once for all, it tells us in Romans 6.10. And so we receive his forgiveness. We can trust the efficacy of his sacrifice because he's fully God and fully man. And so on the basis of all of that, I can receive the forgiveness of God and then I can forgive others. I have a basis to forgive others. We understand him to be the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. That's theology. And therefore, we are to be in submission to him in all things. There's no area of our life that's just mine that God is not to touch. My whole life is his because he's king of kings and lord of lords. 
So when Peter says, since you are waiting for these, he's referring to the promises of God. A new heaven and a new earth to be made. When Christ comes back, we're going to be held accountable for our life on earth. And so I'm to be diligent to live a holy lifestyle. Now that doesn't mean we, we have to wear certain dress, but it has to do with our heart being transformed. Love being given, behaviors being changed. In fact, diligent means to be uh, one who takes every effort, takes pains to eagerly oblige or to anticipate that one day Christ will come, believe that, trust that, and then Allow that to change the way we operate. Notice, diligent to be found by him. I want you to notice something. He doesn't say, diligent to make sure you are post-millennial. Diligent to make sure you are pre-millennial or amillennial. This is not some eschatological map we're to follow to make sure we, you know, get it right We get our eschatological dial and set it exactly the way it needs to be. This is not the point at all about our hope. But this is something deeply personal in that we will face Christ and all things will be brought out in the open. Wow. Paul wrote, Christ will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Talk about accountability. A person, face to face, it brings accountability. Now that's great news for some For others, they may not be too excited about that proposition. Now, certainly, there'll be those who have posed as Christians, right? Uh, Some may be here. You have the name of Christian, but there's no life change. There's no real commitment. And one day, you'll be revealed as an imposter. You espouse a salvation you do not possess. That's probably true for every church will have people like that. And then there'll be believers who secretly hold on to things in their life. They're ashamed. They hide sin. They don't deal with unforgiveness, bitterness, jealousy, a whole host of other things. This too will one day be revealed. There's another side to that. I think there are plenty of Christians, and I'm sure right here amongst us, who are not in the limelight. Okay? You may not make a great first impression. You may not dress the part. You may be in the corner all the time. 
but you serve faithfully. You give sacrificially. You love greatly. And I believe that God will richly receive and reward you. Seeing him face to face, it can bring great joy. But there's also a staggering soberness that that brings as well. Peter specifically mentioned several things that are to mark us at Christ's coming. Okay? We're to be without blemish, without spot, and at peace. Spot or blemish? Well, that harkens back, obviously, to the Old Testament sacrifices. Listen to Leviticus. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And then in Deuteronomy, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. So as a sacrifice was being offered to the Lord, it was to be an animal free of any defect. This was well understood by any Jew. This was ingrained at them from childhood. So when Jesus comes along, and Peter then writes in 1 Peter 1.19, that Jesus is like a lamb without blemish or spot. Can you imagine how that truth just exploded in their hearts? That his sacrifice is perfect and therefore effectual. But wait, well, that is the background. But he says, we're to be without spot or blemish. I mean, that sounds like a very tall task, does it not? <laughs> Yet understand what Peter is doing. He is comparing what Christians ought to demonstrate with the false teachers who in 2 Peter 2.13, he says, are blots and blemishes. Be different than those guys who have so many spots and blemishes in theology and in behavior. They are justifying their sexual proclivities by twisting Scripture. Yes, in the Old Testament, the blemish or spot applied to physical attributes of the animal sacrifices. But for us today, it means, and I think what Peter means now, is free from moral defects. The Christian, in other words, is to be characterized by purity that is without blemish. Now, I know, having grown up an evangelical, and I know that word probably can't even be used now because it's been so politicized. So you, let's just say you grew up in the church, okay? People will do a quick run in a, in a section like this and say, well, you know what he means by that spot or blemish. There's an imputed righteousness, that salvation, that you're made righteous. 
And therefore, that makes you acceptable to God. This is about imputed righteousness, justification. No, I don't think it is. I don't think that's what Peter's talking about. I think he's talking about a practical righteousness that separates us from the rest of the world. We're not the kind that sleeps with their boyfriend or girlfriend. No, we're not that kind. We're a kind without spot or blemish. Now, this has to do with how you handle money, right? Um, how you do your job, your relationships, all kinds of things. But how do you identify a Christian? No spot or blemish. I'll tell you how you're not identified. The Bible never says follow a certain political affiliation. That's how you're identified. People will know you are Christians by wearing orange hats. That's how people will know that you are a Christian. No, that is not it, okay? They're not identified by whether you wear a mask or don't wear a mask. You're not identified a Christian if you have certain bumper stickers that have a nice little cross, just tastefully on the bumper. Oh, he must be a Christian. <laughs> no. Right? Our chief identification that we are Christians is that we have a life of love, and Jesus said that in John 17. That's how the world will know that you're mine. That's what he prayed for, for the believers that they love, and accompanied by moral purity. Two things. You can say it this way. Our behavior follows our hope. The hope we have produces this kind of behavior. The Christian has hopes that are heaven-bound, accompanied by lives of purity. The false teachers had hopes earth-bound, and their lives were immoral. James instructs us to keep ourselves unspotted from the world in spite of seemingly insurmountable cultural obstacles we have today confronting us as Christians. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3 that we have everything for life and godliness that has been provided for us, because Christ indwells us. In other words, we have the resources to do the job. No matter how impossible it may feel to you because you've stumbled so much, maybe you've never really been discipled, and so you don't know a way out of this malaise that you're in, but what the Bible says is there is a way. Christ is in you. We have to learn how to rely upon his presence, his promises, his power. Now, some see spotless, meaning character and blameless, having to do with reputation. Maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure, to be honest with you. Certainly, there are false charges given against people You can't control that. 
And so perhaps what is meant is that there's no legitimate charge of moral impurity against us. And again, that's not just with sexual matters, but I think with a lot of different areas of life. Business, money, relationships, how we treat others. We're pure. Now listen, we can't have an audience this size and not have people who are maybe hearing this and saying, that's ridiculous. Because if you knew me, (laughs) without spot or blemish, uh, that doesn't describe me. Okay? Because I've got a sordid past. I've got a past that is not characterized by spotless. Here's the good news. God offers forgiveness, right? No matter what's in your past. I knew a man who served in a church, had a position in a ministry, was married, had children, clearly proclaimed Christ, and from as far as I could humanly determine, was a believer. And he employed the services of prostitutes during a period of his life, while married with children. He confessed, repented, and resolved to make things right with his wife. It was a long road back. But I recently talked with him. They're still together, and God has restored him and his fellowship with God and his relationship with his wife. Now that is an unusual story because most wives would not stay and most men would not repent to that degree. I only bring it up to demonstrate that no matter what is in your past, God can forgive, God can restore, and I can have my life on a track of being spotless and blameless. Okay, maybe the past wasn't that, but let's start now. Changes do not come from making Continual promises. Repentance involves tough decisions that usually involves the help of others. None of us has a perfect record, but by God's grace we can experience a track record of holiness and that holiness has impact, right? Oh, it sure does. I love this old story that at the closing service of the world Congress of Evangelism in Berlin in 1966, Billy Graham spoke on the need in Christian work for a life marked by by holiness, by godliness, different from the world. And he added, the Christian minister is to be a holy man. And then he illustrated his point with the story of the conversion of Dr. H.C. Morrison, who was the founder of the Asbury Theological Seminary. Many years ago, Morrison, a farm worker, was cultivating a field, and looking down the road, he saw an old Methodist circuit rider coming by on his horse. The young plowman had seen the preacher before, and he knew him to be 
a holy man. And as he watched this circuit rider go by, he felt the power of his godly presence way out in the field. And such a sense of conviction for sin came over Morrison that fearful for his soul, he dropped to his knees. In between the rows of corn, alone, he made a resolve to give his life to God. And as he concluded the story, Billy Graham earnestly prayed, Oh God, make me a holy man. A holy man. Of all the things you can pray for yourself, not a successful man, a holy man. Wow. Hmm. At peace, that's the next item that Peter mentions. That's what we can look forward to when we look forward to the second coming. Peace can come as a result. It means to be at harmony, a well-being of soul, a sense of tranquility. You know, there's a great challenge, I think, for us as believers to not try to create a perfect world, to make everything right in our life. A perfectionist, we call them, right? Or it's not to manipulate circumstances so that everything will be to our favor and we'll be happy, right? Rather, it's accepting the reality that we live in a fallen world. We are people who sin. I'm a person who sins. I'm surrounded by people who sin. I could have you turn to the person next to you and say, you sin. No, I won't have you do that, all right. But we live in the world, consequence, the consequences of being cursed with sin. We endure the pain of the world. We endure our own personal pain. And in the midst of that, experiencing peace, that is a great challenge, right? Jesus said this, I've said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation, trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And he's in us. Peace arrives to the person who knows all is well with God and fears no shame because of their fellowship with God. And so they don't have to feel fearful of the appearing of Christ. One commentator said this, Joyous confrontation with Christ is our destiny. Therefore, glad conformity to Christ should be our standard. Theology, practice. Paul wrote these famous words in Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't forget, 
the circumstances that Paul was in when he wrote those words. Prison. It's hard to fathom how a person can experience contentment or peace during that. Or you may think it's impossible with what you have to face. I don't know. I've seen some pretty bad stuff. You know? How about when the doctor says the test is positive? Hmm? How about when you deliver that baby and the doctor comes back and tells you that that baby has disabilities? It's a tough one to hear. Or that baby won't live. Peace at that. Janet and I knew a young couple. Uh, when Janet and I first met each other and were newly married, lived in St. Louis, dear family in our church, we'd had dinner with them. He was driving one day, wrecked. His wife and two of his children killed in a car wreck. So we're in the funeral line. The wreck actually happened a few years after we were in St. Louis, but we're in the funeral line. And I was struck by how he was responding with a smile on his face, grieving. But he chose to place his thoughts on the hope of heaven and the sovereignty of God in the taking of three family members. And he was at peace the entire funeral. I'm not sure I've ever seen anything quite like that. You know, human rationality and a pile of 20 PhDs cannot apply today's philosophies and comfort a person like God's peace can. See, that's something supernatural. And that's what we all have in Christ. And we all have, as we look forward to the future, that Christ is coming again. And I look at all the injustice that's going on in the world. I look at the political corruption. And I look at the ravages of sin, maybe even in your own family. And you're thinking, oh, Lord, when's this going to end New heaven, new earth. He will execute his justice. I don't know what else can do that. Nobody has the power to do that but God. It guards your heart. That's what Paul says in Philippians. It's a soldier term. It's like God has a, a squadron of soldiers standing guard. And it protects us from the fear and the, and the worry. It's not a, a dream of the human mind or just positive thinking, some kind of mind trick. The human mind cannot comprehend this kind of peace, wholeness, and quiet confidence outside of the presence of Christ. And it protects 
our heart and our mind. In other words, the thinking and the feeling experience peace. This is something real, available in the, in the person of Jesus Christ, who we access through deliberate fellowship. We welcome him, his truth, his presence into our hearts. We sup with him. We pray to him. We receive from him. We cultivate this fellowship and this prayer. As our capacity to truth expands, our tolerance for uncertainty and ambiguity grows, our anxieties diminish. You know, I can be okay with not knowing what happens tomorrow because I know God and I know his love and his sovereignty and that is the surest knowledge and surest hope that people can have. As I consider the safety of being in Christ and look forward to the second coming, I can experience supernatural peace. Listen, there's some of us that could be as simple as this. Turn the friggin' phone off. Turn off the TV, the music. Sit for at least 30 minutes alone with God and allow him to speak to you. Open up his word and talk to him. And when you develop that as a habit, you'll begin to experience more of this peace than always having the noise on to keep the world out. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Patience here is a gift of God. God has delayed the coming of Christ to give more people ample time for repentance. Now, I think this patience is directed towards a variety of people. First, remember who Paul's addressing that was the problem here, false teachers. They've denied Christ's return, and they assert that only those that are disillusioned are going to believe that. Instead, Peter says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God has waited to allow more people to repent, more people to come to Christ. And certainly that includes the worst, the worst of people, even false teachers who can come to repentance. I have seen unbelievable situations redeemed that God has saved them from bondage because they've come to repentance. And in doing so, I think the false teachers can also be saved from sin and enjoy eternal life. So that's one audience. The other 
there are certainly those within the church who have not fully believed. They've heard the gospel, but they've waited. I've got all the time I need, is what they think. But really, what you should see is God's patience as an opportunity to not waste any more time to believe. Christians are also to acknowledge God's patience. We can see this as an opportunity to grow in Christ and live holy lives and not squander the time that God has given to us. And we can be saved from God's discipline by doing so. The psalmist wrote, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he'll act. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And then Peter points to Paul, and we'll we'll take a look at this next week more so, but I want to touch on one or two things here. Peter calls him beloved brother Paul. Now, if you understand the history between Peter and Paul, this is really an amazing thing. It exhibits loving support, camaraderie, between these two men. But I want to suggest to you, it may not have always been the case. In Galatians 2, we had a reported breach between these two men, where Paul rebuked Peter for not being consistent with how he treated Gentiles. Paul had been at Antioch. He was there to plant a church. Um, The church at Jerusalem had sent some people to him to help him with the church. So Paul and Barnabas were there. Peter comes to Antioch, and he spends time with the Gentiles, but then starts to ignore them and prefer the Jews, fearing the Jews. But this was not indicative of the gospel, because what the gospel is, is an offer to Jew and Gentile, black and white, Republican, Democrat, any country, any denomination, any background, right? All can come and make peace with God through the gospel. That's the wonderful offer. But what Peter was doing was not indicative of the gospel, so Paul pointedly opposed Peter to his face in public. Have any of you been publicly rebuked? Okay? You know how bad that can be. We read in Galatians 2.14. And by the way, other people fell in to Peter's bad example. Barnabas and others were influenced by this. And Paul says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Listen, Peter had been a leader in the church. He was a fellow apostle. But we can remember how brash and impetuous Peter has been. And such a public rebuke had to have been difficult I don't think Paul was making a mountain out of a molehill. I don't think he was being overly judgmental. I think he was concerned by the fact that here's an apostle who is setting a terrible example 
and is really being hypocritical when he preaches the gospel. And apparently, what Peter did was respond with humility and took personal responsibility because we don't read of a further riff between him and Paul. Peter saw it as sin, and he loved him for it, and he calls him my beloved brother. How cool is that? It's a wonderful testimony of the primacy of truth and the power of grace. Let me ask you something. Has somebody spoke to you reality, truth, and confronted you about it? Get upset, ticked off, how dare you, defensive, very human. But instead of doing that, thank them for it. Even if it hurt, okay? Learn from it. Somebody has spoken to you and it was not true. It was a false charge. Hmm? Forgive them. You know why you can forgive them? God's approval is a lot more important than man's. So Peter gives great respect to Paul and says that he, Paul, also wrote about some of the things that Peter's talking about. Paul wrote in Romans 2, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And again in Romans 9.22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience uh, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Paul affirms that God is long-suffering and he wants his people to come to repentance. So thank you, Paul, Peter's saying. Listen, there is a soberness that comes to think about these things, and there's nothing wrong with that. We are to fear God in a healthy way. There's an inordinate, negative kind of fear that does not allow us to draw near. That's not what I'm talking about. But there's a fear that is... You're, there's an awesome view of God, respect of God. He's holy. Causes us to respond with humility. This 
This is a good response. There's a fear of God, but there's also great hope. A great reception that can be had. Not shame, but joy. Frederick Buchner wrote, The New Testament proclaims that at some unforeseeable time in the future, God will ring down the final curtain on history, and there will come a day on which all our days and all the judgments upon us and all our judgments upon each other will themselves be judged. The judge will be Christ. In other words, the one who judges us most finally will be the one who loves us most fully. Let's pray.